Amen. Good morning, church. Take your copy of God's Word and turn to Luke chapter 6 this morning. We are continuing in chapter 6 at verse 22 through 23, but I'll back up to give context starting with verse 20 this morning. And turning his gaze gaze toward his disciples, he began to say, Blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who cry now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, and exclude you, and insult you, and scorn your name as evil, for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day, and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For their fathers were doing the same things to the prophets. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, this morning, as we do every morning, we need your grace to sustain us through this time of studying your word together. In today's passage, we are encouraged to know the marks of following Christ, the cost of being a true disciple, and we are told it will come with hatred and persecution. But we thank you that you do not leave us without hope through our suffering. Father, would you bless the next hour as we study this this last blessing, this last beatitude, and how it applies to us through the work of the Spirit. Amen. Well, in the book, The Silver Chair by C.S. Lewis, two children, Jill and Eustace, are called to go on a quest to rescue the lost Prince Rillian, the son of King Caspian, who was kidnapped by the Emerald Witch and is being held prisoner in an underground lair. In preparing the children for this heroic job in Narnia, the great lion Aslan gives Jill four signs Four signs that she would need to help find the prince. Four signs by which he will guide the children in their quest. And, at, and, as her, and has her repeat them until she knows them perfectly. But just before sending Jill on her way, Aslan exhorts her in this. He says, remember, remember, remember the signs. Say them to yourself when you wake in the morning and when you lie down at night. And when you wake in the middle of the night, and whatever strange things may come to you, let nothing turn your mind from the signs. And secondly, I give you a warning. Here on the mountain, I have spoken to you clearly. I will not often do so down in Narnia. The air will thicken. Take great care that it does not confuse your mind. And the signs which you have learned here will not look at all like you expect them to look when you meet them there. That is why it is so important to know them by heart and pay not attention to appearances. Remember the signs and believe the signs. Nothing else matters, end quote. Well, the section that we are in today is in the middle of our study of Luke and is Christ's signs for us as believers. Christ told us what signs we should expect when we take up our cross and follow him. Today, the fourth sign is the world's treatment of those children of the light. 
So we have come to the fourth and final blessed beatitude of our Lord's teaching. Chris has helpfully walked us through an introduction to this section a few weeks ago when he preached on verse 20. If you remember, he pointed us to the glorious truth that though we were poor, the inheritance of the God of the universe is currently ours, the kingdom of God. And last week, we looked at those who hunger and those who cry. And again, Chris pointed to the wonderful truth that our hunger and our weeping are temporary, momentary afflictions because we are promised satisfaction and we are promised joy and laughter. And this week, we will look at the final of Luke's Beatitudes, which gives us a fuller picture into the mark of a true disciple of Christ. Remember, his audience, those that are listening, are his disciples, specifically the disciples of Christ that left everything, forsake everything to follow him. So here in our text this morning, Christ is prophesying to his disciples, both those in the first century and those in the 21st century as well, as to what to expect as one of his disciples. He's given us signs, if you will. And today in our passage, what Jesus is telling us will happen to those who follow him does not sound pleasant, does it? Who enjoys being made fun of and ridiculed and left out for any reason? I'll tell you, it is not always pleasant nor easy to be ridiculed and left uh, ridiculed when you stand for the unborn or to be at odds with family members because you, have, you think having children is a blessing or because you teach your wife and daughters to dress modestly or because you think that justice should be upheld in the public sector or that we should not send our, child, our children to be taught by Caesar. But Jesus didn't say it would be easy nor that it would be pleasant, but he did say that you would be blessed. In elementary school, there was a little adage that was recited. I'm sure many of you know it. It was, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Well, I'm here to tell you that that is a bunch of baloney. (laughs) Words can and do hurt, and Christ knew that. Proverbs 18 tells us that death and life are in the power of the tongue. And Christ knew that his disciples would face all sorts of evil from this world, even verbal evil on account of him. We'll see shortly how it didn't take long for Christ's words to come true for many who were there listening to him that day. Chris mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but by way of having it fresh on our mind, I'll remind you of what these Beatitudes promise. They teach us that we are not to expect a comfortable life here on earth. In fact, Scripture teaches us that we are to expect the opposite of that, aren't we? 1 Peter 4.12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial among you, which comes upon you for testing, and as though some strange thing were happening to you. And Galatians 4.29, But just just as at this time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. So why is this? Why will the world hate us? Why will they scorn our name? I mean, if we are loving and living as Christ commanded, then the world should be blessed by a Christian's presence. In fact, we see many examples of this common grace poured out to unbelievers through believers all day long. And the foundations we enjoy as Americans is because the founding fathers were principled men 
based in the word of God. But the world hates Christ. And it hates Christ because it's impossible for darkness, the world, and Jesus Christ, the light, to coexist. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of man. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overtake it. So Jesus came, and the world hated His message. He came into the world with a message that challenged the status quo, questioned societal norms, and called for a radical transformation of hearts and minds of all of his followers. The prevailing values, ideologies, and systems of the times are ruled by our enemy, which is darkness. Yet the light of Christ bursts into the scene to restore mankind to its maker, just as God had promised in Genesis. And the flesh does not like that. It hates it, in fact. And not only is Christ the light, but we also are called the light. In Matthew 5, 14 and 16, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be, cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. The world hates the message of Christ that we are partakers of, so of course the world is going to hate us because its deeds are exposed and because its lies are brought to the light. It will passionately desire for the light to be put out. And because we are citizens of God's kingdom, we will be treated like the king of that kingdom. And we don't have to go too far out of our way to distance ourselves from our non-Christian friends. All we need to do is be the light that we are, and they will scatter. In fact, often saying the things today, saying things today highlights the fault lines that exist in the church. All we need to say is what the Bible says about marriage, that it's between one man and one woman. You guys recited it this morning. And we will be called bigots. All we need to do is say that God made two genders, male and female, and that he made them very good, and you will be called old-fashioned. And all you need to do is refuse to use someone's preferred pronouns, and you will be called intolerant. Matt Cook summarizes this well. He says, We are kingdom people, and a kingdom man will call what is right, right, and a kingdom man will call what is wrong, wrong, and we can do nothing else. To do otherwise is to go against our king. So when we preach the true gospel of Christ, we will be hated because that message is offensive, because the gospel is light, because the life of a believer is not a walk in the park. Contrast that with the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. This, this message does not offend. It does not offend because it is a lie and because it is from the darkness. And darkness cannot scatter from itself. So what Christ is teaching here is what we are to expect as his disciples, and not only expect, but the hope that we have when we face these situations. John the Baptist was confused because things were not going as he had expected. If you remember in Matthew 11, we see him sending a question to Jesus, asking him if he is the one who is to come 
Or should they expect someone else? Well, this sermon occurred before John the Baptist asked the question. Yet John's circumstances led him to doubt the truths that he must have heard from Christ's teaching. I would say he forgot the sign in that moment. And aren't we so prone to do the same thing? We believe the reality that we have been made up, we believe the reality that we have made up in our own minds rather than the reality that we know to be true from the Word of God. We have storytelling in our nature, but because our nature is corrupt, we often tell ourselves the wrong story. Jesus is teaching his disciples, and therefore us today, the proper story. The one with the adversary, but also the one with the ruling conqueror. And we see the full story, the beginning, the middle, and the end in Scripture. We are living that already, but not yet. The kingdom is already ours, and yet our great reward awaits us in heaven. Again, to quote Matt Cook, We tend to think that a willingness to suffer for righteousness' sake is a sign of spiritual maturity. Jesus presents suffering for righteousness' sake as a sign of a a spiritual life. In other words, suffering for Christ's sake is expected, and it's inevitable. It's not a sign of a mature believer. It's a sign of a believer, period. Well, in today's text, we see Christ describing four different ways in which disciples will face opposition— And so we're going to dig into those now. The first way that we will face opposition involves hatred. When we align ourselves with Christ, the world will hate us, as we've already gone over. They will hate us because we are offensive to to them. They will hate us because we challenge them. They will hate us because we speak the truth. In essence, our Lord assures his followers of facing persecution due to the world's hostility. He reveals to us and to all who tread the same path that adopting the name of Christ will invite hatred from the world. The origin of this animosity is traced back to the intense hatred directed at Christ, ultimately leading to his crucifixion. Soon after, this hostility extended to those who chose to follow in his footsteps. John 15, 18, and 19 says, If the world hates you, understand that it hated me first. If you were of the world, it would love you as its own. Instead, the world hates you because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. Now, quick caveat here. If you're being an obnoxious person and people hate you because of that, or if you are doing wrong and people hate you because of that, that is not what Jesus is referring to. Are you being persecuted for righteousness sake or are you being persecuted because you're a jerk? This hatred is qualified by the fact that what we're doing is because of the Son of Man, not because of selfish desires that lead us to be jerks. So the world should hate us because we are living pure and righteous lives, which is a constant and personal rebuke to their debauchery. This is why the Romans hated Christians so much, because they were bad for business. If you read through Acts, as the, as the gospel spreads, you see that Christians refused to offer sacrifice, uh, sacrifices to Caesar on occasions when they were, were required. What traitors. Those revolutionaries speaking of another king and a kingdom and another king called Jesus. Christians were also monotheistic while, Romans, while the Romans believed in many gods. Demon-possessed mediums, witchcraft, fortune tellers, prostitutes, idol worship were all rampant in the Roman Empire 
and all were contrary to God's law, and all the more why Christians were seen as a threat. Early in the second century, Pliny, the Roman governor of Bithynia, lamented in a letter that he wrote to Trajan the emperor, the emperor that the spread of Christianity had caused pagan temples to be deserted and the sales of sacrificial animals to drop significantly. Christians were, were blamed for everything. They were blamed for all the plagues, all the famines, all the natural disasters, including the burn, burning of Rome. And for these and many more reasons, Christians became hated in the Roman Empire. Under the Roman Emperor Nero, believers in the Christian faith faced arrest in widespread persecution, enduring torture, crucifixion, exposure to wild animals, and even serving as human torches during Nero's garden gatherings. It is probable that Peter and Paul both fell victim to the persecution under Nero to the point of their death. And this persecution continued. For a thousand years after that and more, the Roman system persecuted true Christians everywhere. And then Roman Catholicism flourished and grew up until the Middle Ages and was the primary persecutor of true believers. And then after that, the Reformation came and the Reformers were persecuted. And the hatred continues to this day. These are stats from 2022 regarding Christian Christian persecution in the world. One in seven Christians are persecuted worldwide. More than 5,600 Christians were murdered. More than 2,100 churches were attacked. And more than 4,500 Christians have been detained. Yet these historical accounts align precisely with the words that Jesus spoke. They hate us, and because they hate us, they will persecute us. This prophecy has proven to be entirely accurate. Jesus foretold it, and the events unfolded just as it predicted. But you can hear Christ's voice to his people to remember the signs. Christ's message to us today is the same that Peter and Paul were comforted by. So praise God, church, when you are hated because of Christ. The next one excludes you. This Greek word, this Greek word, aphorisosin, is more than just excluding you from a pickup game or not picking you to be on their team, although that certainly can be included. This carries the weight of excommunication and is an exclusion from the fellowship altogether. This Greek word is also related to the, uh, to the mosaic ban or curses that God would use for destruction, as well as the cutting off, usually by death or stoning, of certain offenders of God's law, such as those who broke the Sabbath. This word carries a much deeper meaning than you might think when you're excluded from something. Exclusion, exclusion from the synagogue held profound implications as it meant being ostracized from the very center of intellectual, religious, and social life within their community. The synagogue was not not only a place of worship, but also a central meeting place where discussions on matters of faith, intellectual, intellectual pursuits, and social interactions took place. So therefore, being cast out of the synagogue wasn't just a religious isolation in that day. It entailed a separation from the heart of communal life, impacting the believer's intellectual, religious, and social connections of the day. And this exclusion went beyond a physical space. It represented a significant rupture in the believer's engagement with their broader community, making their commitment to their Christian faith an even more challenging and isolating journey. 
One Roman historian mentions the expulsion of all Jews and Christians being forced from Rome itself in the late 40s and early 50s. The expulsion was a consequence of disturbances within the Jewish community relating to the preaching of Christ, leading to the decree by Claudius to expel every Jew from the whole city of Rome. So you can see how this was a big deal. This would certainly spill over into general social ostracism. One might refuse to do businesses with Christians or fellowship with them over a meal. And today, this exclusion may play out in various forms with varying severity, such as being passed over for promotions at work or continually losing job bid after job bid because they know where you stand or or being excluded from from family gatherings. It could look like job termination because of your convictions. But worry not, church, for remember that Jesus told us beforehand what to expect, what sign to look for. So praise God when you are excluded because of Christ. Lastly, I'm going to combine the two, insult you and scorn your name. This refers to the slander and the verbal attack that one might suffer for the commitment to Jesus. And the Greek word here for insult is the same word that Matthew used in Matthew 27 to describe the criminals when they taunted Christ that were crucified with him. So it goes beyond the casual insult or reviling of a name in passing. The picture here is that our name will be dragged through the mud, so to speak, and it will be done with the intent to mock and ridicule your name. The concept of casting out their name as something evil refers to this verbal and social rejection that early Christians endured for being associated with Jesus and identifying as his disciples. In fact, what we consider today when describing a group of people were actually insults to those who have been labeled as such. The disciples were identified by various names such as Nazarenes and Christians, both of which were used derogatorily by their adversaries. These names became symbols of reproach. And in the cultural and religious context of the time, being called a Nazarene or a Christian was not merely a a neutral identification, but carried much negative connotation. So this scorning of your name is exactly how the world will attempt to control you and pressure you into fitting in their mold. It is innate within us to be jealous for our good name, and we want to protect our name and our family's name. Proverbs 22.1 says, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver and gold. So we can see how easily it is to become upset and angry when someone insults and attacks and has a smear campaign against our name. But no need to fall for their tactics, for we know what, what to expect. Believe it or not, did you know that Christ the King's name has been scorned already? Because we were actively advocating to make Anderson County a sanctuary county for the unborn, and with our outspoken involvement to remove wicked library books, when we posted for the first time last summer about St. Boniface Academy on the I Love Clinton page, some lady found a connection to our church and to myself and looked through all my Facebook page screenshotting what she thought was incriminating evidence against us. She attempted to scorn the school and the church's name as well as mine, all because I reposted quotes from Doug Wilson or Vody Bauckham or Brian Sauvé, saying outlandish things such as, 
why Christians shouldn't support loan forgiveness, or there's no such thing as gay marriage, or women cannot be pastors. There was quite a backlash on Facebook about the church, the school, and myself, and here's a couple of my favorite quotes from that thread. (laughs) Quote, don't scent your children here (laughs) to be filled to the brim with hatred and indoctrination. Your little boys will be taught to hate your little girls, and your girls will be taught to hate themselves, end quote. I think we're doing a pretty poor job of that, actually. And the second one, quote, what a whack job. As a Christian, I say no way in hell should young children be exposed and surrounded by these asinine, small-minded, scary ideologies. This needs to be shut down, three exclamation marks. Well, when we were launching last year, like I said, Chris and I reached out to multiple churches about renting classroom space, and when they heard our church affiliation, they either completely ignored us or quickly shut down the conversation. There was also a certain wedding early last year held at a certain church who will no longer give us the time of day, presumably because of some of the offensive truths that Chris exhorted during the service. I actually should have used the term so-called church because they do have women pastors. Nonetheless, our church has faced difficulties and pushback, albeit minimal, so far for the sake of Christ's truth. So this is your warning, church, that if you hang around here, you'll likely see more of this, because by the grace of God and in obedience to him, we will preach what the Bible says, no matter how offensive it is to our culture. And by God's strength, we will not be tempted to back down. We will laugh and move on because Christ told us to be ready for it. So praise God, church, when we are insulted for the name of Christ. Well, as emphasized earlier, it's crucial that we refrain from actively seeking mistreatment solely due to the desire to provoke discord or to be troublesome. This inclination contradicts the very essence of Christ's teachings. Instead, our Lord imparts a profound truth Our true blessing is derived when adversity befalls us as a consequence of our allegiance to the Son of Man. 1 Peter 4, 15 and 16. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. The pursuit of mistreatment for its own sake is not only misguided, but its opposite to the humility and love that Christ showed. Christ's teachings highlight that our blessing is intrinsically linked to our identification with him and nothing else. It's not about seeking conflict, but recognizing that in a fallen world, our allegiance to the Son of Man will inevitably lead to opposition. So when we read this passage, it should cause us to meditate on the nature of our sufferings that we have endured. It's not a generic promise of blessing for any form of hatred or animosity, but a specific acknowledgement that living our faith in the Son of of Man as our Lord Jesus will draw opposition. It is a command to live out our faith authentically, even when it sets us at odds with prevailing cultural norms. And it didn't take long for these words of Jesus to become true of of his followers. As I said, early Christians have had many enemies exclude them, revile them, and regard their name of evil. 
I mentioned some of the atrocities that they faced under the Roman Empire, but Christians have also been accused of crazy things such as cannibalism because we drink the blood and eat the body, and incest because Christians refer to their spouses as brothers and sisters, and other ridiculous things. So then, how do we respond to these things? How do we respond to the hate and the reviling? Or when we're excluded? I think there are two main ways to respond, and we see both examples in Scripture. And what you do when is a matter of the Spirit's leading in that moment based on the principles that we find in Scripture. The first, and those two things are, you respond with a word and without a word. Very profound, I know. The first thing to know is that our responses should be proportionate responses to the situation. So the first one is to respond without a word. And most of the time, this should be our response. We do not need to engage in every battle that we're invited to. Most often, those slandering our name will reveal their ignorance and embarrass themselves without needing help from us. Hence the, the uh, why we shouldn't send our children here. <laughs> Proverbs 26, 4 through 5 says, Answer a fool not according to his folly, lest you be like him. Verse 5, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And Matthew 5, 39 through 42, You have heard that it is said, An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Jesus himself was the perfect example of this response. When he was before Caiaphas and the council... Matthew chapter 27, verse 11 says, Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave, them, he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Church, if our Lord, who was the one most falsely accused of all mankind, could be silent when being reviled, then we also ought to be silent and ignore the evil one and his tactics. And the reason we can do this is because we know, ultimately, God is our defender, and he will avenge his own. Zechariah 9.15 starts with, The Lord of hosts shall defend them. Christ tells us that we are not to resist the evil one and to turn the other cheek. Christ was teaching here that uh, what Christ was teaching here was that there should be no spirit of retaliation among us. Turning the other cheek doesn't mean embracing pacifism or putting ourselves or others at risk. Jesus' instruction to turn the other cheek is specifically about choosing not to seek revenge for personal wrongs. He wasn't outlying government policies or challenging the judicial system. Crimes can and must still be addressed through legal processes, and wars can still happen. But a follower of Christ is not to insist on personal rights or seek revenge for personal honor. Luke's account of this same parallel verse has Christ commanding us to love those who we would call enemies and to do good to them. 
to bless them and pray for them. That's quite a difficult task if you have a spirit that quickly retaliates towards those who are unkind to you. So let our default disposition in these situations to not be easily upset, to not be easily offended, to not return anger for anger and yelling for for yelling, but laughter, for we are blessed. Romans tells us that we should love our enemies and overcome evil with good. Anyone can return evil for evil, but our response should be a stark difference because judgment will befall them and we will be blessed. Well, the second way then is with a word. Contrary to those who would say we should never stand up for ourselves or never, never defend ourselves, the Bible makes it clear that there is an appropriate time and way to respond, to defend yourself, and to challenge the abuse. And that's namely when it reproaches the name of Christ. We see this with Christ when he is before the high priest being questioned about his disciples and his teaching. He's being questioned about his authority. So Jesus answers this high priest, and what happens to Jesus? He gets struck in the face by one of the officers because of how he was responding. Christ here did not turn the other cheek. Instead, he offered a rebuttal to the man who was questioning the validity of his authority. Remember, Christ was arrested and put through a sham trial because of who he said he was, that he was God. We also see Paul on multiple occasions defending his name and his ministry when it was being attacked. Paul knew how to use the system when it was appropriate to return an argument. For example, Paul remained silent in 2 Corinthians 10 when people have claimed him to be a softy in person. They were attacking him personally. It says, For they say, His letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech is of no account. He doesn't seem to respond to that argument. He rather says, I'll take that, and then moves on. Opposite of that, though, like our Lord, when we see that he is the avenue in which they are attacking God, he doesn't let that slide. For example, in that same letter, we see him given a substantial defense of his apostleship, for which he received quite a bit of pushback from the Corinthians. We do not, um, we do not see him stay silent on this matter, but rather Paul defends his apostleship, because in doing so, he also defended the gospel that he'd preached to them, a gospel of salvation through faith in Christ. If you go back and look and re, uh, look and at chapters 3 through 5, the accusation seems to be that Paul was a con artist, and Paul uses those accusations against them to advance the gospel in all of his responses. One other example where we see him rightly determine when to speak and when to be silent is when Paul is put on trial before the Sanhedrin. I think we actually see an example of both appropriate responses in this one story. First, Paul had been doing nothing but giving his testimony and defending the gospel in Acts chapter 22 to the crowd. But when Paul mentioned that he was to spread the good news to the Gentiles, that's when the crowd got fired up and started hurling insults and shouting at Paul. He was nearly flogged before he claimed his Roman citizenship, and he was brought before the Sanhedrin the next day. So he's taken before the Sanhedrin, and he addresses these men, And he made the bold declaration that in spite of yesterday's events and the arrest, that he had done nothing wrong, nothing to deserve the treatment which he was receiving, which was bold because this council knew of Paul's former life 
and his treatment of the Jews. Of course, when he's giving his rebuttal, he draws the ire of Ananias, the high priest, who orders him to be struck. Now, here's where we see Paul's two responses. First, Paul immediately responded with a, with a rebuke, that God will judge you, you whitewashed wall. Now, Paul didn't know who, who he was speaking to like that, and we'll get to that in a moment. But what we do see is that it was appropriate for Paul to speak to someone that way. He was defending the Lord because Paul's transformative life and boasting was in nothing of his own accord, but solely in Christ's work in his life. Had the one struck him not been the high priest, his response would have been appropriate. Of course, Paul is immediately rebuked for speaking to the high priest in such a manner, and without hesitation repents for not seeing that he was the high priest. He knew according to the law that he was not to speak evil of the ruler, from Exodus 22. Had Paul known that it was the high priest, he would have been silent and turned the other cheek. So depending on the situation you are in, it is appropriate to respond to a fool according to his folly, and it is appropriate to respond uh, to not respond to a fool according to his folly. Lean on the Spirit to help discern who the subject of the attack really is, our Lord or ourselves, and respond accordingly. But brothers and sisters, we know the story, the whole story, and we are told to what to expect. We live in the reality that the Lord is giving us through his sermon. And when we die to ourselves and our easily swaying emotions that lure us into this sin, we will respond wisely and boldly when it is right as Christ did. Well, let's look here at our final verse. Chris mentioned last week that nowhere in the Beatitudes was there an imperative from our Lord. We aren't commanded to be poor, nor be hungry or mourn, or as I stated earlier, to cause others to hate us because we are being a jerk. But he did ask me to clarify that he should have qualified that by saying, only in verses 20 through 22 is there no imperative. Because in 23, we actually have three imperatives, three commands that are tied to verse 22. Rejoice or be glad, leap for joy, and behold. So rejoice. Rejoicing ought to be our first and foremost prominent response to anyone hating us. The Christian life is marked by a host of paradoxes, and this is no different It is such a paradox to be so happy when we are so hated, but it's exactly what you are told to do. It's one thing for the light to shine brightly when everything is going well, isn't it? This was Job's story. Everything was going so well. He was described as blameless, upright, God-fearing, and turned away from evil. And God allowed suffering to prove Job's faith. And after all of that, the book ends describing Job as having died an old man and full of days. Job honored God through the loss of everything. So do not despise your sufferings, brothers and sisters, not because you love suffering, not because suffering is such a grand time and so much fun. Instead, rejoice in what the suffering is doing in your life. We are not a a people most pitied because Christ died and was raised to new life. And we are to rejoice because we look to Christ who suffered far more than us and it's making us more like him. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 9 says, Beloved, 
Do not be surprised at the fiery, fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to, do the, to the decree, degree that which you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of God and, and the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Church, are you instead grumbling at your suffering or murmuring at the difficulties that you're facing? Do you shy away from awkward, difficult conversations because you care about the treatment of your name or the embarrassment you might feel? Do you despise your sufferings and persecution? Then why continue to do what you're doing to invite the suffering? You're not receiving the blessing of your suffering if you do not obey God's word to rejoice in that suffering. So if that is you, I call you to repent today, and then I call you to rejoice. Next, he says, leap for joy. This is a physical overflow of what is in your hearts, and it ought to come out in a physical act of exclamation. The same Greek word is used by Luke to describe John the Baptist's response when he was filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb. The Super Bowl was last Sunday, and Azariah and I were in the minority, rooting for the chiefs among those who were watching with us. Sorry. Imagine the scene when the touchdown catch occurred to overtake the 49ers and seal the Super Bowl win. We both leapt up out of our seats, pumped our fists, and high-fived one another with excitement and joy. Now imagine that scene 100-fold, and that should describe what our temperament should be when we suffer for the sake of Christ. As if the greatest honor and happiness imaginable had been awarded to us, because it has. Christ has commanded that it is. So don't take your suffering more seriously than your reward. And lastly, we should behold the prize set before us. I think Matthew Henry's commentary summarizes our prize well here and what to meditate on. He says, Great is your reward in heaven, so great as far to transcend the service. It is in heaven, future and out of sight, but well secured and out of reach of chance, fraud, and violence. Heaven, at last, will be an abundant recompense for all the difficulties we meet with in our way. This is that which was born up, which has borne up suffering and saints in all ages, this joy set before them. So brothers and sisters, these three imperatives are such wonderful and encouraging commandments to dwell on. To those who suffer most, God will impart the rewards. And we don't capture and retell stories of the martyrs because we enjoy hearing the gruesome and horrendous ways in which these men and women were treated in their last days. We keep their stories alive because we often taste a morsel of the reward that they knew they were about to feast on. So many literally rejoiced and leaped for joy at the prospect of suffering even unto death for the sake of Jesus. I could share many who walked joyfully to the gallows or to the fire pits, 
You can pick up Fox's Book of Martyrs and read story after story of faithful men and women who rejoiced in their suffering, even suffering leading to death. But there's one that I believe captures this spirit of verse 23 perfectly. It's of a man named Dr. Taylor, not Hudson Taylor, missionary to China. But this was a pastor in a small town in Suffolk, England, during the time of Queen Mary. The reason for his persecution and death is unknown, but it's described this way as he was on his way to his death. Quote, On the 9th of February, 1555, the sheriff and his company led Dr. Taylor toward Headley. And coming within two miles of Headley, he desired to get down off of his horse. For the rest of the way, he leaped and set a frisk or twain as men commonly do in dancing. Why, Master Doctor, asked the sheriff, are you joyful? He answered, well, God be praised, good Master Sheriff. I've never been better, for now I know I am almost at home. I am almost at my father's house. End quote. Dr. Taylor leapt for joy because he knew the reward which awaited him, and it was far better than any reward he had here on earth. And finally, we see what I believe is an encouragement to not lose heart at the suffering that we will receive. This treatment is not new. Noah was mocked when he was building the ark. David was mocked for his stature. And James describes these men as blessed and steadfast. James 5, 10 through 11 says, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So Christ's encouragement to his listeners is to not be surprised when persecution comes. It's been the enemy's same old play from the beginning. We are to be encouraged by the grace which was sufficient for them to carry them through. The same grace we have in Christ Jesus. This really hits home when the persecution comes from our friends and family, doesn't it? We have been accused on many occasions of being a cult because we desire to sing deep theological songs rooted in Scripture and because we believe in six literal days of creation and because we take seriously the different roles between a man and a woman. We believe and rest in the sovereignty of God. We will not give our children over to Caesar. We expect our children to obey us so that it will go well with them. And we desire to see Christ's rule and reign in all of our life not just on Sundays and Wednesdays. All of these things can be defended biblically, yet every single one of them steps on the toes of the world and of many evangelical churches today and on the toes of our extended family. But we do not need to be afraid to be labeled for the sake of Christ. We do not need to be afraid to be at odds with our friends or families for the sake of Christ. Rather, be encouraged when you are swimming against the grain of sinful nature for the sake of Christ. And do not get easily flustered or easily offended when those closest to you speak lies against you. Because your Heavenly Father promised it, so rejoice in it and use it as an opportunity to show them the love of Christ while at the same time explaining biblically from where your convictions come. And if you cannot answer biblically for your stance and why you're being persecuted, then maybe you need to reform yourself. 
Church, Christ the King, let us never cower from being poor, from hungering, for crying, or for being hated and excluded and insulted and scorned, all for the sake of Christ, because our current and future reward is too great a substitute for any momentary comfort that we may seek. Let us pray together as a church that we do not cower from this suffering, but instead to show the world that we have the mark of Christ on our life and to keep our eyes on the eternal promise, even in the midst of suffering as Christ Jesus, as our King Jesus did. Remember, church, that he told us it would come, that suffering would befall us. So let us take comfort in the assurance that his word is sure. The Israelites coming out of Egypt knew the promises of God. They knew what God had promised the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that their descendants would inherit the promised land. They had heard directly from Moses that God had intended to deliver them over from their, or to deliver them from their slavery. And surely their faith was strengthened when they witnessed the plagues against Egypt. Yet as they stood at the edge of the sea and Pharaoh's army was pursuing them, Instead of trusting in God's promises and remembering the signs, they murmured and doubted. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Let us learn from our forefathers. Let us remember his promises and rejoice so that we do not ourselves murmur against him when the hatred and the malice comes. And let us never forget the signs that Christ has given us. The signs should encourage us and strengthen us, and we should remember them in the high mountaintops and in the lowlands where the shadows fall. Paul said it best, so I'll leave you with these words from Hebrews. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race set, set out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we know that your word is sufficient to strengthen and encourage us. I pray that it has done so today. I pray that we would not take our suffering more seriously than our reward, but that we would remember the signs and not be surprised when trial, trials come. But instead, that our primary reaction will be to rejoice for, for being counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. Reveal to us, Father, through your word and with clarity, how to respond to Christ's commands in our lives. May Christ the King Church and her members be marked by joy in every situation. Amen.